Good morning. chapter 28 too. So if you want to start turning there, um, we're going to enter the final chapters of 1 Samuel, the final five chapters. And we're going to start to see a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Only 31 chapters in 1 Samuel, so we're, we're getting there. But 1 Samuel is drawing to a very a messy and sometimes confusing end. The narrator doesn't help us out very much here as, as we'll start to see the, the stories start and stop. Rather abruptly, we're going to jump around until we get to that final chapter. These last five chapters are going to be a lot like one of those water slides you see where they go shooting down the tube and then there's that big bowl at the bottom and you kind of go, until you fall through the hole. That's, that's what the last five chapters are going to be like. We're going to circle around several different stories until we finally fall through the hole at chapter 31. All that to say, buckle up and let's get started. 1 Samuel chapter 27, starting in verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me any more in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moab, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, and Hinoam, the Je Jezreelites, and Abigail, the Carmelite, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in a royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gershites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive, and he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jerahimelites and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise they will tell about us, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his people Israel, therefore he will become my servant forever. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. May God add his understanding to the reading of his word. Father of mercies, hear us for Jesus' sake. We fully admit that we are sinful even in our closest walk with you. It's only by your mercy that we didn't die long ago. Your grace has given us faith in your cross, the cross that you reconciled yourself to us with, drawing us with your great love, reckoning us as innocent as Christ, 
though we are guilty in ourselves. Giver of all graces, we look to you for strength to maintain those graces between us. Because it is hard to practice what we believe. Strengthen us in temptations. Keep us sensible of our weakness and dependent on your strength. Let every trial teach us more of your peace, more of your love. Your Holy Spirit is given to increase your graces. And we cannot preserve or improve them unless he works continually in us. May he confirm our trust in your promise to us. And let me walk humbly in dependence on you. For Jesus' sake, amen. When I was a baby, my dad used to rock me to sleep, and he would sing a hymn. Some of you might be familiar with it. Is anyone familiar with Come Thou Fount? Okay, we've got a couple heading out there. It's an older one. It's an older one. Uh, I want to read you the, the first verse there. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon, mount of thy redeeming love. The writer of that hymn is named Robert Robinson. He had a rough upbringing in 18th century England. His father died when he was just a small boy in 18th century England. When your father died, that meant the, the son had to go out and work. And so he started work very young. And he fell in with a rough crowd. And one night he decided to go uh, to a worship service uh, that was being, uh, there was a preacher there by the name of George Whitfield. And he initially, he went with his friends because he wanted to heckle the gathering. But Whitfield that night preached on Matthew 3, 7. O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And Robert left in dread. Under a deep sense of sin that lasted for three years. And finally at the age of 20, Robert repented and immediately became a pastor. Two years later, in 1757, he wrote a hymn called, Come Thou Found. Robert would continue to preach, but toward the end of his life, his theology drifted just a little bit as he became friends with a man named Joseph Priestley, who would so thoroughly convince Robert of his Unitarian views that Robert began preaching that Christ wasn't fully divine. Seemingly bright star fell away from the faith of salvation provided by a Jesus who was both 100% man and 100% God. Sometimes the people who we would never expect to fail can succumb to what can only be called a crisis of faith. A time in their life where they begin to question God's faithfulness to them. And they find themselves adrift in doing and saying things that don't represent Christ at all. This isn't a new phenomenon. We've seen it happen in 1 Samuel already. Even people who thus far in our narrative have been fairly righteous. Even David, a man after God's own heart. A man who had just been told by multiple people, including <laughs> the king he was replacing, that he would be the new king. Still just a man. Still prone to the, the same self-talk that, that we are. You know that kind of that talk that you have yourself when you're focusing on what's in front of you, what's what's tangible, what's in your face, what's tactile. Maybe you were just in an argument and you're you're still feeling testy. You know that grumble you do after Maybe you've had a really rough day and you're driving home from work and thinking about what you really wanted to say to that boss. That rude coworker. We've all done it. Grumbled through something in our head or maybe under our breath. And although it's healthy to work through your emotions in private and then act like a more Christ like person when you're around others, we have to be careful how much free reign we give those thoughts. 
hopefully your goal is to work out whatever it is that you're feeling and then circle back and deal with it in a Christ-like manner. Maybe you say something like, yeah, we argued, but I was kind of a jerk too, and maybe I should apologize for the way I acted. Right? But what happens when our self-talk takes on a life of its own? When our self-talk begins to stay focused on me, on, on my emotions, on my needs, my, my thoughts, and we find ourselves neglecting to interject the truth of God into our thoughts. And slowly but surely, God's desire for our sanctification in all situations begins to fade. And more and more, we go to our own heart for truth. Because it feels good to indulge that flesh, doesn't it? It feels good to roll around in that mud of self-pity for a bit. And before you know it, you're spending more time in the mud than wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And you begin to to justify things in your head. The mind is a very powerful thing. We can justify just about anything. Especially if there's a real hurt behind what happened. If there's a real injury, we can justify doing quite a bit. And this is where we find David today. He's in his head and not in God's word. And we find David coming to a conclusion that we never would have expected there in verse 1. He says, now it will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul will then despair of searching for me anymore in the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. That first word in our passage, then, is an indicator, right? It gives us a little bit of time frame there. And then can mean it could have happened right after the, the last chapter. You remember, there were the 3,000 men, David walked in, stole the spear in the jug, walked back, yelled at Saul, and he said, send a, send a guy to get your spear. I'm not coming down there, right? And the guy came up and he, and he handed him a spear. And it could have happened as soon as he turned away from handing that spear off. He had to stop. Could have been a day later. Could have been a couple days later. But it was fairly close to when this last encounter happened. David thinks to himself, one day I will perish at the hand of Saul. The Hebrew phrase uh, literally here means swept away. Right? It's actually the same phrase that David just used a, a few verses ago. Remember when uh, uh, Abishai wanted to stab Saul with that spear? And David said, no, 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 no. He, God will take care of him. Right? He'll either die in his sleep, or God will just take him out, or he will be swept away in battle. Now David uses that same phrase to describe himself. I will be swept away by Saul. And we look at this and we go, what? David, what are you talking about? You just walked between... 3,000 dudes and had like, a whole conversation. Pulled up a spear, grabbed a jump, and walked right back out of those 3,000 dudes, and nobody woke up. It seems to me that Saul was the one that should be worried, right? But what about all the times when God swooped in and saved you before? You remember he was on the mountain, and Saul was closing in around him, and he was just about God, and then a messenger showed up and said, hey, the Philistines are attacking, so Saul pulls away. You don't remember anything about that? No, nothing? Where's your faith, sir? We just described your behavior in the last chapter as faithful and righteous. Why are you bold me here? If you said all that, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. But, hear me out here. The guy's had spears chucked at him. He's been betrayed by the locals, and not just those rascally uh, Zippites, right? Remember that town he went down and he saved from the Philistines and then he had to flee because they were going to give him over to Saul? He's been sleeping in caves. He's been 
days. I'm talking years this has been going on. Now, I'm not saying what David did here was right, but I would challenge any of you to look into your own life and look when you had to struggle for a day or two, or a month, or even a couple of years. And then look at David and throw the first stone. So we're left in this conundrum. How can this David guy, the guy that we've been through so much with, just give up and cross over? Just surrender his faith in, in God's protection? And that's when it hits us. David is, after all, just a man. And he's left out the truth of, of God in his self-talk. Rather than saying, my life is terrible, but God, he says to himself, self, we got to get out of here. We're going to die. Now, for us, the fact that David could up and give up on his faith in Yahweh is kind of both a freeing thought and a terrifying thought, all in one. It's freeing to know that even men, even men after God's own heart, like David, can stumble, and their faith falters sometimes. And I can take a little solace in that fact. When I look back in my life and I see the times where my faith has faltered, I've stumbled. But it's also terrifying that this mighty man of God could lose faith because I don't know about you, but I'm no David. If it were up to me, I would have screwed everything up in the cave and sat us all at night. But David didn't. I might not have listened to Abigail, kept going right on and slaughtered all of Nabal and his, and his men. But David didn't. I might have looked the other way when Abishai ran old Saul through with that spear. But David didn't. I see this guy who is, is so amazing and so righteous. He bails on Israel because he loses faith in Yahweh. Which means, if I'm weaker than David, which we just acknowledged, then I run the same risk, or maybe even more, of stumbling in my faith in Yahweh. And I want to be very clear here. The faith that I'm talking about here is not sal salvific faith. Right? I'm not talking about you... you Wake up one day and say, uh, Jesus never existed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your faith in what God is doing in your life and what's going on in your circumstances. That's it. Despite that thought, we carry on. And we see David's plan is to run to the Philistines. So Saul, Saul will stop looking for him. Verse 2, that's just what he does. He crosses over, takes the 600 men who are with him, and he goes to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. For those of you that are wondering, yes, this is the same gap that David fled to the first time he ran from Saul to the Philistines. Right? And the only way he got out of that was when they drug him in front of the king, he drooled in his beard and, went, duh, 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 and scratched on the wall. He's like, I love crazy people around me. I don't need this guy. Get him out of here. But this time, David's going to bring a few more friends. In verse 3, we see that uh, he took his men, he took his household, his men's household, even his two wives. Can you imagine the Remember the psalm, right? Saul has killed his thousands, David's tens of thousands. That's with these people. That song is about these people. And remember, that song was sung after David slew this town's champion, Goliath. Right? So now all of a sudden you've got all these Israelites intermingling, and that had to have been up. But the king of Gath realized an ancient proverb about war. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So David shows up with a group of fighters and a grudge against the king of Israel. 
And it just makes common sense. Welcome him in. And look at the effect it had. Verse 4. Uh, it's told Saul, David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. It worked! See, David did the right thing, because Saul stopped chasing him. In the world's eyes, this is, this is a victory. Whew. David doesn't have to worry about Saul killing him anymore. Whew, good deal. But just one question. Did David ever have to worry about Saul killing him? Regardless, David's success emboldens him, so he goes to old king Achish in verse 5, and he says, hey, uh, we give me a city to live in. We've got to think about this. He had 600 warriors with him and all of their families, so this could have been 1,000, 1,500 people that just descended on this little town. Gath wasn't a huge, sprawling metropolis, so it probably was a drain on the, the city there. And uh, David recognizes they're probably not building up the best wills of the Philistine people being in that town. So he says, hey, give me a, a town, would you? And uh, King Achish gives him Ziklag. And the number of the days that David stayed in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. <clears throat> and we find out what David's been up to. He goes out and he raids the Gershites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, the Electricites, all of them. And uh, he goes all the way down from the, the Judah, the bottom of Judah there, to all the way down to the, the land of Egypt. And I know what some of you are thinking out there. Man, this doesn't seem so bad. David finally got some peace from Saul. He's got his own village now. He's free. He can come and go as he pleases. Now he gets to go out and fight the enemies of Israel and still have a safe place to rest his head at night. This is nice. Well, if you're thinking that, keep reading verse 9. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he all the animals. the quote. Let me just fill in between the lines here real quick. David is going out, yes, and he's fighting the enemies of Israel. But look at what he's become. He's killing the men. Okay, the men were fighters. That's, that's a given. And the women. Maybe the tribes were more progressive and the women fought too. Who knows? But what happens when you kill the adult men and the adult women? At best, you have a bunch of defenseless children and babies running around in the wilderness. And at worst, he was killing them too. Someone who's well-versed in their Old Testament might say, well, okay, those tribes that you listed, uh, those were the tribes that Moses said when they went into the Promised Land that, that the Israelites were supposed to completely clean out. They are supposed to kill them all, right? And they didn't do that, so David is just, you know, taking care of some old business. Or what about the Amalekites, right? Those were the ones that Saul was supposed to completely wipe out. Obviously, he didn't because David's still attacking them. He's, he's just tying up loose ends here. That's all. So my answer to that would be, what then is this blowing of cattle that David might do? Because if you remember, God commanded Saul to destroy everything, including those young calves, and the sheep, and the camels, and the goats. Now you might be able to make a case for David destroying all the people based on Moses' instructions to the Israelites when they came into the promised land. You might be able to make a case there, but let's keep reading. Verse 10, now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? David says against the Negev of Judah, Negev of the Jerathamites, and against Negev of the Kenites. Those don't sound like the names that we just read a couple verses ago. Right? David is getting really good at this line. I sure hope that doesn't carry through the rest of the chapter. 
The strange part is David didn't really have to do this. The tribe that David was attacking were hostile to the Philistines, just like they were hostile to the Israelites. But David was playing a dangerous game here. He was trying to prove to Achish that he truly did hate not just Saul, but the Israelites, in order to keep good relations with the Philistines. If we were to read uh, into 2 Samuel, we would find out that David was not just paying tribute to Achish, but he would take some of that plunder and he would go into Judah and give it to the elders there, too. So David was kind of like a double agent. Right? He was playing both sides. His loss of faith had caused him to bed down with his enemy and he was implicitly gone. But what about those tribes he was wiping out? Was he really just trying to tie up loose ends? Look at verse 11. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell about us, saying, so David has done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country. He might still be able to defend David's actions against the enemies of Israel as some attempt to fulfill Moses' direction to the Israelites. But now we get a clearer picture of why David is doing what he's doing. His main concern was not pleasing God, but was stealth and deception. And the narrator doesn't come right out and say it. He doesn't say that David was being too brutal, but mentioning the slaughter twice, and then the second time he mentions it, saying that David, it was David's practice all the time he was with the Philistines. It kind of gives us the impression that this wasn't done in an effort to please God. But look at the effect. Verse 12. So Achish believed David, saying he has surely made himself odious among the people of Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. Success. Again, this deception thing is really gaining some traction here. The verse that comes to mind is, is Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is a way of death. And although this situation seems to be going very well for David, we're about to find out that the deception works just a little too well. Verse 1 of chapter 28, he says, Now it came about that the Philistines got ready for war, and they're, they're going to war against, guess who? The Israelites. And Agnes says to David, Know assuredly that you're going to go to fight the Israelites with me, you and your men. If this were a sitcom, this would be the part where David would look at the camera and He'd grab his collar like this and give us a big comedic gulp. Right? And the, the laugh track would go off and everybody would laugh. This isn't a sitcom. This is real life. And David's chickens have come home to roost. Now, Acts says, you and your men are such great warriors. You're, you're going to join our war with Israel. So David does the only thing he can. He throws on his best poker face and he says, uh, you're going to see what I can do. And up until this point, I haven't really talked about Akish. But you do kind of have to marvel at this guy's gullibility. I mean, for just under a year and a half, this David guy, a guy he thinks is his ally, has been rampaging across the countryside, aiding the Israelites, and now he says to David, you're going to fight Israel with me. And David says, oh, you're going to see what I can do. But Akish hears, let me out, boss. I'll show you what I can do. So Akish, in his infinite wisdom, decides to make David in verse 2 as his bodyguard for life. And the Hebrew there actually means guard of my head. You will be the guard of my head for life. 
considering what David did with the last Philistine King Gath said, I wouldn't take that job would last very long. But Abish is hopefully unaware that David has now found himself in a pickle. If David says no, the Philistines will most assuredly know that David's lying. But if he fights the Israelites, how will he ever be accepted as their king? This is a problem. What are we going to do? What's the resolution? I warned you at the beginning of this sermon. The last five chapters of Samuel were a bit different. They twist and turn and jump around in time. And worst of all, they leave you with some major cliffhangers. Today is the perfect example. Just as the story is ramping up, and David is faced with this momentous decision, and we're, we're all on the edge of our seats going, David, what are you going to do? How are you going to get out of this? The narrator jumps to a completely different story. He goes over to Israel, starts looking at Saul. In fact, it's probably one of the weirdest stories in 1 Samuel. We'll look at that next week. For now, we're left to grapple with what we've seen here in these 14 verses. The man who was described as righteous and faithful in the last chapter has a crisis of faith that crosses over to his nation's enemy and lives a brutal and deceptive life. How did David get here? I was thinking about this weekend, as I was looking at it, I just kept looking at this passage, and the more I looked at it, the more I started to see a pattern. And it's an age-old pattern. It's as true today as it was in the Garden of Eden. You see this... Uh, in, in every chapter leading up to this one. Who did we hear about through his actions or through his words? Through the words of one of the people in the past. Who did we hear about all throughout 1 Samuel? God. Yahweh. Lord. And yet we get to this passage and we find ourselves uncomfortably without the Lord. Gone are the passionate speeches of, of Yahweh's faithful protecting hand Gone are the exclamations of, of Yahweh's provision, and we are left with what? David's thoughts to himself. There's no difference in this passage than in Genesis 3, uh, verses 6 through 7. This is Eve now. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, and he ate. And they both, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Verse 6. Before that, we're, we're talking about the Lord. Did God really say, yeah, God said this? All of a sudden, God disappears out of verse 6. And what do we see? We see that Eve sees that the, the apple is good to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise, and, and she took and you have bounced through a whole myriad of stories throughout the Old Testament. Through stories about a prophet named Elijah who, who calls down heavenly fire and overcomes the godless prophets of Baal. And then he runs back to Jerusalem and he, he beats a chariot he runs so fast. And then he flees into the wilderness and asks to die because he thinks all is lost when he's threatened by Queen Jezebel. And you bounce through more passages and more stories of people focusing on their problems instead of God. And you see a disciple of Christ get out of a boat in, a, in the middle of a storm and walk on water, but then start to sink when he takes his eyes off Christ. And you keep going, and, and you see a whole nation so focused on themselves that they crucify their Messiah. 
And you keep going through story after story until you end up in Revelation. And you see people that have completely lost sight of God so much so that they call for the mountains to fall on their head and the rocks to cover them from the glory of God. Genesis to Revelation, this is the story. People who take their eyes off of God and what he's done for them and start focusing on the here and the now. What we can see and taste and touch and hear and smell. When that focus is lost, we drift. It doesn't have to be a, a failure as massive as abandoning God's people to live with his enemies. Sometimes it can be small. Sometimes doubt creeps in, right? And it, it starts gnawing at a person's well-established faith. Maybe, maybe it's just an issue that you think is just a little too big for your concept of what God is or who he is. As time goes on, that thought grows and it begins to take over other areas. David didn't just wake up and say one morning, God can't protect me anymore. We aren't given a view into David's brain, but things like this don't start small and just blow up. They start small and they grow over time. Well, if God can't protect me here... Then what about over here? And if God can't handle this situation, what about this situation over here? And if, and if like in our passage today, we don't continually reinforce God's promises and his faithfulness that we've witnessed in the past, if we don't reinforce that in our heart, we run the risk of crisis. Some tipping moment where we say in our heart, surely I'm not protected here. I will go out into the world for my sermon's good without giving something to you, right? How can we prevent this crisis in our faith? And how can we quickly identify whether or not we are slipping in our faith so that we end up dealing with a problem when it's small and when it's huge? Not once we've crossed over. Brandon finished up with 1 Thessalonians with the youth group before Christmas. And so logically, the next book that we started last Thursday was 2 Thessalonians, Right? And in listening to Brandon preach through the first four or five verses, he asked the kids a question. He asked, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, one of the verses he shared with us was uh, Colossians 3.3. For the purpose of this sermon, I'm going to back up a couple of verses. So we're going to look at Colossians 3.1-3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Amen. Where do we set our mind? Is it on the things above? Is it on Christ? On his love for us? On his promises? Are we focusing on the world? Are we focusing on ourselves? Do we focus on our health, our wealth, and our pursuit of happiness? But not on the will of God? On his laws, on his ways. How do we how do we get his law and his ways? How do we understand what those are so that we don't focus on this world? I can tell you. I can like it. Because there's no quick fix here. Right? We're Americans. We want to fix it in five minutes. I want my Amazon delivery tomorrow. I can't wait until they do the drone thing and I can get it 15 minutes, right? no quick fix. There's no drink this or pray that or take this pill and you'll be strong in faith. 
That's why Paul so often referred to the Christian life as a race. It takes constant preparation. Everything we do should be analyzed through the lens of God's will. Amen. And how do we know God's will? Do we turn on Caleb on the way to work? Do we do good things for people around us? Do we serve at the church? Do we make sure that we're in church every Sunday? Those are all good things. With the exception of some of those songs on Caleb. Right? They're a little light on theology, okay? But no. That's not the main thrust of what we need to be doing to guard our faith. We know the will of God by studying the word of God. And that is the only place that we can do that is in God's word. And daily picking up this thing, cracking it open and reading through what God is like, what he has done, what he will do, and how we can be more like Christ. And when our bills or our health or a loved one's health or, or any of those things begin to fill us with dread or fear, and we find ourselves saying, surely there's no safe place for me here, we can repent, and we can look at all the promises that God made, and how he wants us to live. We can run back to the faithful arms of a God that loves us. But what happens when we don't? What happens when a believer, a true believer in Christ, wanders away and crosses over for protection in the world? And again, I'm not talking about walking away from Christ. But maybe the believer begins to trust in the wrong things, the wrong teachings, like the writer of Come Not Found. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. Because a true believer in Christ is in God's hands. And God will not abandon them to live apart from him forever. For the Lord chastises those whom he loves. And he will seek you out and correct you. As Jesus says in John 10, uh, starting in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hallelujah. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So not only are we in Jesus' hand, we're in the Father's hand too. And no one will snatch us out of his hand. Our God will not abandon us. Amen. I mentioned Robert Robinson's Wandering earlier, the writer of the Come Not Found, a bright star in the kingdom of heaven was dimmed by bad theology from the world. And there's a story, and admittedly it's unverified, it's been circulated quite a bit to be true, but it can't be verified. But it goes like this, Robinson was traveling in a stagecoach one day. His only companion was a, a young woman unknown to him. And in the providence of God, not realizing with whom she spoke, the woman quoted, Come thou fount of every blessing, saying what an encouragement it had been to her. And tried as he might, Robinson could not get her to change the subject. Finally, he said with tears in his eyes, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Gently, she replied, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing. Amen. 
was deeply touched by that. And as a result of that encounter, he repented. His fellowship with the, with the Lord was restored through the ministry of his own hymn and a Christian's willingness to witness. Again, we don't know the truthfulness of that story. We can't verify it, but we do know the truths within that story are very accurate. The streams of mercy are still flowing. What we do know to be verifiable about Robinson is that in one of his final sermons, Robinson declared that Jesus was God and added, Christ in himself is a person infinitely lovely as both God and man. Folks, we must prepare ourselves for Christ with daily prayer and studying of God's word. And when we wander, we cry out to God in whose hands we are firmly planted. I wanted to leave you with the final verse of, of Come Now Found. <clears throat> I already told the first service this, but when I pasted the, the words into my document here, they turned into various characters, so I'm not going to read from there, I'll read from up there. I want to read it to you. It says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to thee. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, we thank you for the examples that you give us in your word. Thank you that there is no hero worship in your Bible. <clears throat> Save that alone through Jesus Christ. The men and women in the Bible were people just like us. They fail, and we fail. Lord, I pray that we would take lessons from this and that we would understand what it's like to, to lose that, that faith but also understand how not to lose it. Well, we pray as we go about our separate ways that your word would become food for us. That as a deer pants for water, we would, we would want to get into your Bible and, and learn about you, Lord, and learn about your, your truths and, and what you are going to do and what you've done. And we wouldn't just learn it, Lord, but that we would apply it. are prone to wander in this world. We feel it. We're prone to leave the God that we love, but Lord, we pray that you would tie us with a fetter, tie our hearts to you, Lord. Protect us. May your Holy Spirit guard us and keep us always near to you. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.